Well, good morning. Hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. Some of you probably still in the process of Thanksgiving-ing with family and friends maybe here. If you're visiting with us, welcome to Rolling Hills. We're glad that you are here. And uh, of course, there's always some folks that are still sitting there stuffing their face with the turkey and that tryptophan-induced coma. Couldn't quite make it in. Good morning to you online as well. Um, just a quick announcement, kind of piggybacking on the loop there. Uh, as you can see behind me, Christmas drama opening this week, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, matinee Sunday. Great show, uh, original show, new, uh, never been done here at Rolling Hills before. Um, just take, take uh, it as an opportunity to come yourselves, but bring people. Um, I was talking to Rick the other day, and my first experience at Rolling Hills was uh, being asked by our neighbors in the cul-de-sac, I was the atheist, they were the believers, to come to this Christmas drama thing. That was before this building was built and we were down in the old building. So I came to a Christmas drama and now I'm up here teaching. So that could happen to you if you go to the drama. I just want you to, to know that. Um, no, it's, a, it's just a great show and uh, just fun to do for the holidays. There is, uh, we could use a few more volunteers. There's just a ton of work that goes in behind the scenes to this show. And so if you have been uh, over the last few weeks hearing Bill talk about becoming, going from a fan to an owner, this is a perfect opportunity. Kind of a limited time window here, early on before the Christmas rush really gets going and something you can really help out this uh, church with. And so as you walk out the doors after the service today, just to your left is where you can purchase tickets, but you can also sign up for any number of volunteer opportunities, and we would really appreciate you helping us out. So I was driving home from my office in Salem a couple of weeks ago, thinking about this message and, 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 and struggling with how to convey to you Joseph's worldview that we see in our text today, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 45. And I, and I just, too many words were coming to my head. It just wasn't making sense. So I turned on the radio, because that's always good. And God talked to me through the radio. Now, it's not odd God talking to me. He's talking to me all the time. But usually he's using my voice. I don't know if you have that happen to you. Or he's using my wife's voice oftentimes. At least I think that's God talking to me when I hear that voice. But anyway, I'll work that out later. And, and the guy on the radio says this. He says, imagine if every circumstance in your life was happening for you instead of to you. And he was speaking from a, a, a theological perspective. This was not a self-help guy. This was not the power of positive thinking or how to turn every problem into an opportunity or vice versa. This was, he was speaking from, from the perspective of, of just wrap your mind around that. Everything, every circumstance, every uh, opportunity, every hardship as being for you instead of having it being done to you. And so I want to start with that this morning because I want you to take some time to kind of think about that as we go through uh, Genesis 45 today because I think at first glance that can seem like wishful thinking or... Um, yeah, that's not really real. You can't really do that, but you can. And, and we see Joseph doing that in our text today. And so I want to give you some time. And so as we go through Genesis 45, um, be, be just kind of having that in the back of your head. So before we get into our chapter today, I want to just give us a, a quick kind of catch up or review, especially if you're visiting and maybe haven't been into this Genesis series like this church has been all year. And uh, so I want to focus, though, uh, on it from from 
what I'll call a trauma timeline. In other words, I want you to connect with what's happened to Joseph as we started with his story in, in, in chapter 37 to where we are today in 45. Okay, so that's going to be our review here. So we have a 17-year-old kid that we are introduced to in, in Genesis 37. He is hated by his brothers, so much so they don't even want to talk to him. They can't stand talking to him. And uh, that he's hated for a couple reasons. One, he seems to be his father's favorite, and that doesn't do well. And number two, he shares some dreams with uh, the rest of them that he has, where in essence, they're going to be bowing down to him. Even the sun and the moon, the stars bowing down. And they're thinking, you're 11th in the line of succession here. Okay, 10 older brothers. This is a patriarchal society. The oldest male is ten, tends to be the one that everybody focuses on as far as the one the family wealth and, 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 and name will be, be passed on to. Brothers two and three might be thinking, we might have a chance if something happens to one. Three and four are thinking, yeah, well, maybe we'll show up. 11th, they're thinking, what are you talking about? Us bowing down to you. Does anybody know who is 11th in the line of succession for the presidency of the United States? It's a guy named Mel in Nebraska. No, it's not true. It's actually the Secretary of Labor. So there you go. Fun fact for you. Tips for tourists. My point is, he's nowhere on the radar to be revered at all in this family. And, you know, sibling rivalry is absolutely real. But there's also, if you're a younger sibling, a lot of times we'll look up to those older siblings. Uh, we might spend half the time fighting with them, but, but, but a lot of times we look up to them. Imagine having all of your older siblings just despise you and what that does to you from an emotional perspective. Well, one day he's sent by his father out to go check on his older brothers. They're out with the, uh, the livestock and they see him coming from the distance and they decide they're gonna kill him. And then they decide, well, maybe that's a little harsh. So I'll tell you what we're doing, we're just gonna throw him into a hole in the ground. We're gonna put him into a cistern and he'll just die of natural causes. And that way, technically we can say we didn't kill him. We'll take his robe, we'll put some animal blood on it, take it back to dad, he'll assume the worst. Boom, done, problem solved. However, they notice a caravan of Ishmaelites in the distance coming t on their way to Egypt through Canaan there. And um, they say, well, this is an opportunity for capitalism. So they haul Joseph out of the pit and they sell him into slavery for 20 pieces of silver. And so now you're 17 years old. You've just been sold into slavery by the, your brothers who despise you. You're off to a foreign land. They speak a foreign language, foreign customs, this is going to leave some scars. Things go okay uh, in Egypt for a little while at least. He's, he's uh, bought by a high-ranking Egyptian official. But that official's wife has the hots for Joseph. And she continues to make advances towards him. He continues to rebuff her. Finally, she gets tired of this rejection and she just decides to frame him for sexual assault. And he's thrown in prison unjustly where he sits for any number of years. While in prison, he meets a couple of Pharaoh's servants and um, they have some dreams and they're struggling with what they, to understand them. And, and Joseph is able to interpret those dreams and they actually come to fruition. He's, he's right. One, not so good for, for one guy. One turns out pretty well. He's restored to his position with Pharaoh, but he forgets to tell Pharaoh, hey, there's this guy that can interpret dreams in jail. And so Joseph continues to sit in prison. By the time he's 30, Joseph has spent almost half his life enslaved or imprisoned. That's going to leave a mark. However, after Pharaoh has some disturbing dreams of his own uh, that nobody else can interpret, all of a sudden, 
his employer remembers, hey, there's this guy in jail. He does these things with dreams where he gets it right. So they bring Joseph to Pharaoh. And Joseph indeed, through with God, uh, you know, basically interpreting through Joseph, um, interprets the dreams correctly. Basically, Pharaoh, he tells Pharaoh, you're going to have seven years of plenty and seven years of famine, and you better do everything you can in those seven years of plenty to save up, to stockpile, to store, so that you can make it through the seven years of famine and keep, basically, Egypt afloat. He thinks this is wise counsel, and Joseph's life takes a radical change at this point. He is made second in command of all Egypt, this Hebrew slave. Just an amazing rags to riches story, radical change. He's got wealth, he's got power, he's got, um, he, he starts a family. It seems that all of that trauma has been erased, forgotten. And in fact, uh, in Genesis 41, Joseph names his first son Manasseh, which as he says, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Until one day, two years into that seven-year famine, Joseph looks out into a crowd of folks that have come to Egypt to buy food because that's the only place there is food, and he sees those 10 brothers. And you can imagine what he thought was forgotten was not. All of that trauma coming back. And you may have experienced that in your life or you think you've forgotten it, moved past it. Maybe you've even aggressively pushed it down and something happens and you realize, I haven't dealt with this. And so this begins a tremendous battle within Joseph a battle between a love of family and the hatred for what they've done to him. A battle between reconciliation and revenge. Between forgiveness and resentment and ultimately at the highest level between good and evil. And this internal battle is going to move Joseph to tears in chapters 42 and 43. And it's going to lead him to a final testing of his brothers in chapter 44 and Bill covered that last week if you were here. And so that's, you know, the emotional state that we pick Joseph up in as we get into chapter 45, verse 1 today. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn there, or your app, you can click there. Verse 1, chapter 45, Genesis. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood before him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And I think this is probably a pretty mighty cry because I think what it was reflective of was a release and a relief. And so the first takeaway I'd like to leave you with this morning is forgiveness begins with an act of the will. In other words, if you wait till you feel like forgiving someone, you probably won't. So it begins with an act of the will, but it is made complete with a transformation of the heart. And you may have heard Bill or me, you know, anybody else talking about forgiveness from up here or just having conversations on your own and that idea of, well, I forgave him, and then the next week I had to forgive him again. And then a month later I had to forgive him again. I had to re-forgive. And what you have here is the will, which is good, but it's only when that heart is transformed and, you, and it's truly sunk in that it is forgiven and you have been released.
from that. And I think Joseph has been willfully engaged in the act of forgiveness to some degree or another in chapters 42, 43, and 44. But here at the beginning of 45, I think we're witnessing almost in real time that transformation of his heart, that freedom of, of, of good winning out, forgiveness winning out, reconciliation winning out, love winning out. Corey Tenboom, who knows a thing or two about forgiveness, has a number of quotes. I like this one because I think it pertains to Joseph here. It says, forgiveness is setting the prisoner free only to find out that the prisoner was me. And I think Joseph has realized he is now free of this. It wasn't forgotten, and once it was repressed, now it's, he's free of it. I get to see those prison doors swing open almost every week at the Celebrate Recovery Ministry here. Um, if you're going to walk in recovery, just like if you're going to walk with Christ, forgiveness is going to be essential to that. We talk about, in, and if you're going to effectively walk in recovery, you need to be able to accept the forgiveness that God has extended to you. You are good enough. And some people have a struggle with that. So accepting God's forgiveness, forgiving yourself, and of course, forgiving others. So those three components are kind of core in the Celebrate Recovery Ministry. And when I see people reach that point in CR, when I see the transformation in the heart. Because you can tell, you can tell on their face, you can tell how they speak. They are lighter. They are, they are more, they are brighter. Those prison doors are open and they are free. All right, back into our scripture. Verse three, and Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. Perhaps the understatement of scripture, certainly this morning, dismayed, they haven't seen this guy in roughly, what, 22 or so years, 23 years, something like that. He was speaking to them through an interpreter prior to this, but now everybody's gone. So now he's speaking in Hebrew to them. So that's odd. Uh, Bill talked about a few weeks ago, his appearance would be Egyptian looking. So they're thinking, wait a minute, what's going on here? Am I hearing that correctly? And probably at the core, they're scared to death. Because if that's true, What's going to happen next from a guy with this much power? Verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And that's, I think, significant in that, once again, that was not normal either. Egyptians didn't mix with the Hebrews. Joseph didn't even mix with really the other Egyptians because of his status. And so now he's saying, come near, come close. Look into my eyes. Look at this face structure. Do you see anything familiar here? And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. And so you have, on the one hand, you sold me. On the other hand, God sent me. You sold me, free will, act of evil. God sent me, God's sovereignty. How do the two relate or, or can the two relate? And I think yes. I think it's both free will and God's sovereignty. And I think at least in my life, I see that play out quite a bit. Charles Spurgeon, I think, um, 
puts it very well in this, in this bit of text I want to read to you. He says, how wonderfully those two things meet in practical harmony, the free will of man and the predestination or sovereignty of God. Man acts just as freely and as guiltily as if there were no predestination whatsoever. And God ordains, arranges, supervises, and overrules just as accurately as if there were no free will in the universe. Proverbs 19.21 says it similarly, just with a few fewer words. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, free will, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand, God's sovereignty. And here's how I put it, because i got to break things down simple, manageable little bites. My capacity to screw things up, free will, pales in comparison, is infinitesimal compared to God's infinite capacity to redeem them. We pick back up in verse 6. For the famine has been in the land for these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. And so he continues on with this, this idea. See, Joseph... <clears throat> is looking at it as all these circumstances happening for me because of God. Joseph has a vertical perspective on the world. Vertical perspective on life. Starts with God and everything comes down from that. Vertical, a vertical perspective means that Joseph realizes that God ruled his life. Not good men like Pharaoh or evil men like his brothers, not circumstances or fate or a zip code, his alma mater or Facebook, God was in control. God had, has the plan. And because God was in control, all things worked together for good because he is a good God. It's a very linear but very simple but very straightforward and honest cut to the chase thinking. God is good. God is in control. I have free will but ultimately God's plan will prevail. So the, all those things in the, that are happening around me are not happening to me, they're happening for me. So we have free will, but God has a plan. And this is where I can go astray because see, I want to try to figure out the plan. I want to try to, see, because if I figure it out, then I can circumvent it, I can modify it, I can tweak it, I can enhance it, I can make it, partially my plan. I'm going horizontal now. I have the free will. God has the plan. So my second takeaway for you this morning is trusting the plan maker is more important than figuring out the plan. Joseph is keeping his eyes on God. That's the, the, the key in his life. He's not trying to figure out the plan. He's not asking so many questions like, why me? How did this happen? He just knows because the plan maker is where he's putting his trust, not figuring out the plan. The greatest commandment does not say to figure out God's plan with all your heart and soul and mind. It says to love God. Relationship, focus on him. 
Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who figure out God's plan, all things work together for good. Nope. All those who love God. So when we get our focus off of trying to figure out the plan, we have a vastly different relationship and experience with God. I look at it like this. If you were to go to Las Vegas, let's say, and um, maybe go to the Penn and Teller show, illusion, magic, all that type of stuff. You go into the show, you sit down, and as they're doing the show, you spend the whole show trying to figure out how they did that trick. How did that happen? Was it up the sleeve? Is it the wires? What happened? You're going to have a vastly different experience at that show than the person sitting next to you that is just enjoying the wonder of the show. Enjoy the wonder of the plan maker. Stop trying to figure out the show. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, has a similar take on this. He puts it this way. The man who comes to a right belief about God is relieved of 10,000 temporal problems. Joseph has that right belief about God, about God in spite of all the hardship that we just we went through as I opened this morning. And in fact, I think one of the reasons that he has that right belief about God is because of that hardship. He didn't always have that. Now, remember back when I, I let you know, you know, he remember he named his son Manasseh, okay? His view before was, oh, oh God was, he was looking to God. That was good. But God was, 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 was plan was to have him forget, move on, stuff that down. He now, of course, realizes that wasn't the plan at all. We've talked about that through this, this series about what happens when we repress or don't deal with those issues from our past. We look at the world differently. So when we move from only asking God to remove hardships in our lives, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with God. Please take this away. Okay? But if we stop there, we're missing the wonder of the plan maker. When we move from asking him only to remove hardships in our lives to asking him to use those hardships for his good purposes, we will begin to see the circumstances in our lives differently. Instead of seeing the harm that the enemy has done to us, we will instead see the good that God has done for us. And that's where Joseph is that he's got that right belief. I'm passionate about that concept because I've lived that in my life. I've shared with this church any number of times my road to recovery through addiction. I am a grateful addict, former addict, because I have seen through my addiction all of the things that God has brought into my life that were not there before that. Now, it's not, the, it's not the path I would choose because I was not supposed to be an alcoholic, okay? But what God has done for me through that addiction has been amazing. And part of that change or part of that perspective is now looking at other hardships that come across my desk as what's God going to do with this? So back in 2018, when our youngest daughter, Daphne, began to spiral down into the depths of treatment-resistant depression, anxiety, self-harm, and suicidal ideation, I absolutely cried out, why, God? Why me? Why Daphne? But I didn't stop there because I knew 
there was something in this, that God was going to do something with this. I, was, I, I had a heart of anticipation as much as, as sorrow. What are you going to do with this, God? So I wanna just share with you this morning a little bit, just a few things of what God has done for us with this walk. For me, it brought a whole new understanding and empathy for clinical depression and depression in general. I was the dad that when Daphne said, I'm, I'm depressed, I said, cheer up, because that'll work. Get happy, think happy thoughts. Want some candy? All of those tried and true methods to relieve one of clinical depression. And those of you that struggle or have struggled or know people that struggle, no, that doesn't work. So I had to walk that walk and really begin to understand this is not situational. This is much deeper. And God has used that in my role as a ministry leader at Celebrate Recovery because mental health issues are common in that ministry. And I'm a much better leader because of Daphne's walk, because of what the enemy did to Daphne. No, because of what, the, what God has done for us. I have a much deeper gratitude for my wife and our marriage in general. Walking through this with our daughter really brought that, uh, that concept of relying on a partner. I don't think I could have done it without her. Um, and so as a result of Daphne walking this walk, we have strengthened our marriage, our reliance upon one another, and what a gift that has been because that continues to play out and continues to deepen to this day. For Daphne and I, you know, self-harm cutting specifically there's an addictive component to it. I know it's not an addiction, um, but there's, there's this, the crossover was that I could relate to was doing something that made you feel good in the moment but was harmful to you. I was able to connect with her on that. And when you just hear that passing, well, that's horrible, connecting on addiction with your kid. That's not, once again, what I planned. And yet, took Daphne and I to a deeper level of understanding and love. That's what God did with that. And in the case of Daphne individually, any number of things. She has been a comfort to others in her peer group that struggle with this. She has been able to show them what coming out the other side looks like. And she's not all the way out but she's much farther along than where she was. She's been able to realize that getting better is not measured by returning to how you used to be. It is measured by being grateful for today and by living today as best you can. And today, Daphne's living better. She's living better from when she was in depression, but I think she's even got parts of her that's living better than before she went into depression. Depression and anxiety are pretty low on the stress meter for her these days. Self-harm is in way in the rearview mirror, and she's out there in the world, uh, a bright light. And so as we look at, as we learn to accept hardship, as a pathway to peace, it changes who we are and how we respond to others. 
And we see that. I see that in Daphne. I see that in myself. And you may have experienced that as well as you've moved through hardships. We certainly see that with Joseph. We see the results of this change in Joseph's life. And I want to return to our scripture in verse 10. And Joseph speaking to his brothers still. <clears throat> he says, you shall dwell in the house, I'm sorry, the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you may have do not come to poverty. Moving down to verse 14. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Remember back in 37 where we started this story, they hated him so much they couldn't even speak to him. And now there's this amazing reunion. What a rich conversation that must have been. Scripture does not record that, but I can only imagine, especially with Joseph seeing what God had done for him, how, how rich that was. And so we see that Joseph doesn't just stop with love. When we look at those passages I just read. And he doesn't just stop with love and mercy. And he doesn't even just stop with love and mercy and forgiveness. He takes it all the way to grace. He is giving his brothers, his family, things they do not deserve. The very essence of grace. Or what I call aggressive forgiveness. And I didn't make that up. I just heard it. I just can't remember where I heard it, but I love it. Aggressive forgiveness, God's grace. Him pursuing us in so many ways, but pursuing us with that, with that grace, with that forgiveness. This pattern or progression of love, mercy, and grace may seem familiar to you. Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And we see the grace continue in the rest of chapter 45. Pharaoh hears about this reunion. He's overjoyed. He says, okay, you need, you need to get your entire family out here. And so Joseph and Pharaoh, they load them up with provisions. They give them clothes, money, food, uh, extra livestock to haul a few things back. But basically Pharaoh's telling them, no, leave everything you've got there because I'm gonna. I'm, you're gonna live off the fat of the land. Uh, you're gonna go. You're heading to Goshen. Now Goshen is in this lush area. I don't know if you remember a few weeks ago when Bill showed us that map of the Nile Delta. Goshen is right there on 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 the riverbanks in this super fertile plain. Now probably not doing too well during the famine, but it will return to fertile uh, production. You know, in the years to come. And so he's not just saying, "I forgive you." Now get out of here. He's going above and beyond. And while it is not a saving grace in the salvation sense, the grace that Joseph extends to his father, his brothers, their children. And by the way, the, the brothers do return and they tell Jacob, Joseph is alive. And of course, Jacob can't believe this. Um, but I think one of the reasons that that Joseph sent all this stuff is like, where, where did this stuff come from? Either this was a major uh, you know, shoplifting event you guys had, or this is the real deal. And he believes them and, um, you know, gets ready to pack up and head to Goshen. So 
He makes this available to his brothers, his father, their children, and their children's children. It's a saving grace in the sense that it will fulfill God's plan of relocating the Israelites from almost certain assimilation, if they stay in Canaan, to a people that are set apart in Egypt. A plan that will culminate more than 1,700 years later when another son will be sent by his father. He too will be rejected by his brothers. He too uh, will be sold out for pieces of silver, falsely accused, and will suffer so that many others can thrive. With love and mercy, he will accept the punishment that we deserve so that by his aggressive forgiveness alone, we may be eternally saved and set apart. You know, as we move into the, the holiday season, there's often talk about, gosh, we got to get back to remembering the, the, the reason for the season. It's about Jesus, all that. And we, we say that, and then we kind of go off on our merry way. And, and sometimes it's maybe, I think sometimes it, we're looking for how do, we, how do we do that? And I would suggest to you that starting with that right belief about God, starting with that vertical view of God, starting with what if everything that happens to me, every circumstance, good, bad, indifferent, in my job, in my family, in my church life, and whatever, everything is being done for me instead of to me. I think that's a tremendous start point to connect us really with what this season um, that we're moving into is all about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you put upon all of our hearts this morning that the plan maker, you, are where our focus needs to be. You make all things good because you are good. You don't just grant grace or dole out grace. You are grace. You are gracious. And so therefore, everything you do, we can see the grace and your graciousness in. Lord, I pray that as we move into this season celebrating your son, a son who was sent so that we may thrive, that we connect with you, that we love you, that we focus on you. And Lord, if there are those out there this morning that are in a season right now where they just feel like everything's being done to them and there's just no hope, I would ask special provision for them that you would be in their minds and their hearts, that, that those of us that may be in a, in a less volatile season would come alongside them and in an understanding way, not in a patronizing way, not in a simplistic way, but connect them or reconnect them to you, Lord. I'd ask that you use all that we have to bring more of you to the world. Pray these things in your name, Lord. Amen.